So what is the American Library in Paris? American Library in Paris is a lot of things. It's a private lending library. It's also a nonprofit. It's a community of English and non-English speakers who love literature, books. It's a nearly 100-year-old institution. It's also kind of a cultural center to me. There are a lot of different events, workshops, book clubs. Can you tell me a little bit about the Evenings with an Author events at the American Library in Paris? We have authors, scholars, journalists, artists, comedians, actors, musicians, public figures who come and speak for about 45 minutes. Anyone that's coming through Paris that our audience, our community is interested in listening to. The following Evenings with an Author event was recorded live at the American Library in Paris. It is my great pleasure to introduce our speakers for this evening, Emma Jacobs and Stephanie Nadaldo. And they will be discussing this beautiful book, The Littler Museums of Paris, right here. We only have a limited number of copies for sale, so talk to one of my colleagues very quickly after the event. And I highly encourage you to purchase copies for your friends and family. It's the perfect gift book. Uh, it's just light enough to fit in your American Library in Paris tote bag on your way to many of the wonderful gems that Emma discusses in her book. It is beautifully illustrated. I would buy it just for the illustrations alone, but Emma's also a natural storyteller, so you get lots of tidbits. I learned about a famous librarian who was also a resistance fighter um, just by reading her story, so it's quite a delight. And Emma is a multimedia journalist and illustrator who is reported internationally for NPR, Marketplace, and PRI's The World. Her work has appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and The Littler Museums of Paris is her first book. And I should also mention that the original illustrations are on display and for sale at the Paul, Paul et Rambeau Café in the 11th arrondissement. And in conversation with Emma is Stephanie Nadalo. She's a museum educator and assistant professor of art history, currently serving as the interim director of the Parsons Paris MA program in the history of design and curatorial studies. And when she's not in the classroom, she works as a licensed guide to design and deliver engaging museum pedagogy within the Louvre, the Rodin Museum, and the Museum of Jewish Art and History, to name but a few hallowed institutions. So please welcome Emma and Stephanie. So good evening, everyone. So tonight we have a rare opportunity to discuss with Emma her experience researching, writing, and of course, illustrating her first book, the cover of which you see behind me. So I'm really hoping that our discussion this evening is gonna highlight what makes this work absolutely unique and interesting, both for travelers to Paris, who might be visiting temporarily, but equally importantly for long-term Parisians um, and museum lovers, of, of which, of course, I consider myself and many of you, I assume, as well. Um, I just wanted to say a few words of introduction to her book before I'm going to obviously turn things over to her to read some very selected sections of it. I don't know how many of you um, have perhaps had a chance to read the book already. Can anyone, can I see a sign of hands? Okay, excellent. So a couple people have actually already read it, fantastic. Um, but for the rest of you, I wanted to give you to kind of wet your palate a little bit and let you know that that most importantly represents a kind of hybrid genre as we're gonna learn about this evening. So it's part guidebook, 
part travelogue, and it features over 60 of the smaller museums located in Paris and the surrounding region. And we're going to hear about museums dedicated to art, to science, to history, and much, much more. Now, of course, the hand illustrations are what makes it a particularly charming um, thing to possess. So I absolutely try to get your hands on one of the few copies that remain. Um, and equally importantly, of course, is that she offers us a really fresh perspective, both on museums that we all know and love, um, such as the Musée Rodin. And here I'm just showing you the um, chapter breakdown. And for the museum lovers in the audience, it can be a game. Do you recognize any of these hand-illustrated objects? Uh, Musée Rodin is the most obvious, of course, um, with his busts here. So even if you know museums very well, like um, I would say for some of these, I do, um, you nonetheless are going to learn really fascinating um, approaches to the history of these collections and how they formed. Uh, but also very notable is, of course, the obscure, relatively obscure, it's small museums that when I was reading the book, I had never heard of. Um, and we're going to get a sample of that this evening as well. Um, so there's a lot in it for everyone. Um, and I also kind of wanted to mention that, and I, here I'm just showing you some more illustrations to feast your eyes on, um, but each of the entries tells you about how a collection came to be. Really its role in history and how a, a museum collection's history can change over time, um, but also the personal histories behind the formation of many of these institutions. And as you re read through the chapters, if we think of the uh, chapter outline, we might go and talk more detail about this later, um, each of the narratives, eventually, if you read it cover to cover, the way I did, um, they actually interweave. And you actually get a whole museological universe um, that really shows the quirky parts of Parisian history, but also how these various collections intersect. Um, and so I hope we're going to give you a sense of this tonight as well. So as just a point of entry, I asked Emma to select two uh, selections from her text to actually read it out loud to us today, to this evening, to give you a sense of the tone of the writing and also the kind of scope of the project. And after this, we're going to, of course, open it up to a more free flow discussion, of which I hope you audience members will also contribute a bit later. So with no further ado, I'm going to turn things over. Okay, so I'm going to say two things to set this up, and one is that, um, well, a lot of the collectors, there are a bunch of the museums, they come from personal collections once upon a time, and many of those founders are no longer with us, but um, the, the founder of the Phono Museum, he is, and also that just, you know, one of the best parts of doing this project was I got to go ask people affiliated with this, these museums, whether they were founders or, or cure, uh, conservators or, or taxidermists taxidermists, um, my nosy questions. So uh, that's all to say that I'm going to read the Phono Museum and, uh, and uh, talk to you about Jalal Aro. For many years, Jalal Aro packed his, apartment with vintage, packed his apartment with vintage phonographs and gramophones. There was stuff everywhere, says Aro. Originally from Aleppo, Syria, he came to France at age 20, where he met his wife Charlotte. Together, in the late 1980s, they began digging up audio playback machines in antique shops and flea markets, bringing them home and living among all the equipment in a typically small Paris apartment. What was fun, he said, was that our kids would play with the things when they were young. We would explain to them how they worked. The couple started dealing in historic audio equipment, eventually opening a shop in the Pagal neighborhood. The people who would walk in, it turned out, had many of the same question questions as Jalal and Charlotte's children. 
This gave them the idea of creating a public museum from their personal collection. Run by volunteers since 2014, the Phono Museum has shared a collection of sound recording technology dating back to a cabinet-sized mechanical music box from Switzerland, completed in 1880. Among the collection's treasures is a barreled a barrel-shaped object on an ornate stand, a reconstruction of a phonautograph, which French inventor Edouard Léon Scott, Scott de Martinville used to record the human voice in the 1850s, two decades before Thomas Edison. Um, a painting by Francis Barreau shows Nipper, the artist's late brother, brother's terrier at the horn of a gramophone. This cozy domestic scene was created at the key moment when phonographs and gramophones like those in the museum started entering people's living rooms. Companies competed for customers by offering a new range of colors and designs seen in this gallery and new approaches to branding. So Barreau, he shopped his image around to record companies. Edison turned him down. Uh, dogs don't listen to phonographs, he said. But Emil Berliner's gramophone company uh, adopted the logo with the tagline, his master's voice. And unlike many more traditional museums, the Phono Museum still regularly turns the machines in its collection on for visitors. Some play records, while others play wax cylinders that do degrade with use, making this a no-no for most conservators. But, said Aro, an instrument that makes music, if you don't use it, it's like you've let it die. They need to function, he believes, and besides, a digital reproduction of the sound is no substitute for the experience of seeing and hearing the original object play. Visually, he said, it's already intriguing and compelling. But what's more, whether it be collectors or a child who knows nothing about the object, as soon as you turn it on, they're frozen in place. Thank you. So I just maybe add a few comments here. Has anyone been to the Phono Museum? Anyone in the whole audience? Well, I hadn't either. This is one of the many examples of small museums, some of which you have to make, as Emma describes in her book, appointments to visit um, that sound absolutely charming. So I have not yet gone, but I definitely want to. But it's also a great example. And her anecdote, I mean, it's more than an anecdote. It's revealing that in this p collection, they're able to do things that in public museums in Paris you can't do. So one of the rules of conservation of objects, of course, in a national collection is you can't touch the objects, even if they were meant to have a function, unfortunately, to preserve them, you generally can't um, use them. And so here's a great example where in this museum, they're able to keep them alive, as uh, the person interviewed described, um, in a way that wouldn't be possible elsewhere. And I'll just mention as well, that's not the only museum in her book that she describes having this approach to living objects. Um, I'm also thinking of the Museum of the Fairground Arts, where um, you can actually ride a carousel and play um, you know, in a vintage um, arcade game, which is really obviously quite unusual. So it's another perspective on what a museum is. It's not just a place to look at objects that are growing dusty, although I obviously love doing that as well. It's some place uh, where the objects have a new life. Um, so the second section we're going to hear is going to change tone quite dramatically. So from the relatively lighthearted phonograph machines um, to something a bit more profound, arguably. Um, and this is a collection that probably more of you have been to. So how many of you have visited the Musée Nissim Camondo? Exactly. So as expected, um, a venerable institution you probably already know. And we're going to hear Emma's description of it.
Actually, I'm going to mention one thing first, which what's interesting is they have the exact opposite approach, which is uh, he left such strict instructions in his will that nothing can be moved. That, that if you see photos, I think they have them at the museum of what it looked like, I don't know, 80, 90 years ago. It looks exactly the same. So, um, all right. So, in 1910, Moise de Commando tore down the perfectly serviceable 46-year-old family mansion on the Parc Monceau to build one, build one to match his 18th century furniture collection. Commando came from a family of Jewish financiers from Constantinople who moved to Paris when he was a child. But he became attached to the grandeur of a long-ago pre-revolutionary France. Some historians have speculated this interest of Commandos and certain other Jewish collectors was an effort to fit in with a Parisian elite, which received them uneasily. Commando certainly found an escape from his gradually unraveling personal life in his collection. His wife left him for the Italian count in charge of the stables in 1897. During World War I, while the new townhouse was in progress in Paris, Commando's son, Nisim, was surveying the German lines from the air. I am sure he wrote to his father, an early car owner, that if you went up in a plane, you would be enthused. It's a marvelous sensation, and what is curious is the great sense of safety one feels. But Nisim died when his aircraft fell from the sky in 1917. This catastrophe, Commando wrote, destroyed my life and changed all my plans. He withdrew from work to bury himself further in his hobby with the idea of opening a museum to memorialize his son. Commando's daughter, Beatrice, Beatrice um, carried out his plans after he died in 1935, presenting the house and its furnishings to the French state. Like many Paris museums during World War II, its contents were uh, evacuated to a chateau in the Loire Valley in case fighting spread, uh, excuse me, in case fighting reached the capital. Uh, Beatrice de Commando and her children, Fanny and Bertrand, were detained, first in the Drancy internment camp outside Paris and then in Auschwitz. The children perished and Beatrice died two weeks before the camp's liberation. So the Musée Nissim de Commando remains as a memorial to an entire family. So here you already have a sense of the range, right? So from quirky and funny to um, deeply personal and tragic motivations behind the foundation of the museum, which was already meant for memorial, of course, to the son who died in World War I, only to then become a whole other layer of meaning um, following World War II's events. Um, now, this is, again, just a small sampling of what is um, in, this, in this book. And so I kind of want to just open up some questions for Emma of the broadest nature and see where our conversation leads. So I'm kind of curious just for you to tell us more about how this project originated in the first place and anything you want to share us about uh, the kind of research process. So um, sort of the longest stretch of time I spent in Paris, I was on a, a permis vacances travail, um, the, the working holiday visa. So I knew my time was limited. Um, and I think that sort of encouraged me to, to develop hobbies that let me get out and, and go see the city. Um, so on the weekends, I started going to, I, I picked, you know, one or sometimes two little museums a weekend, and, and I went um, pretty consistently throughout the year and a half, um, and had this idea initially that maybe I'd make a little chapbook for myself, um, but then, you know, it, it turned out it's a tremendous amount of, of work, there's a lot of museums, <laughs> and so I decided to formalize that into a book project. Wonderful, and can you um, tell us a bit about the selection process, or even the book title, which is has its quirky little 
Little Er Museums of Paris. Yeah, so that was my book proposal title, and they were like, we really don't like it. But then they couldn't come up <laughs> with something that describes what, you know, what, what it is. And so I felt like, you know, in a, a city with very, very large museums, I had a lot of latitude to choose what I thought was interesting. So I, I was going, first of all, for things that I, I think people know less well, but also for ones that I felt like had an, a, a big criteria was it had an atmosphere. Um, it had sort of the immersive quality that um, I think can be be special and, and unique often to older museums, though not exclusively. Absolutely. Um, and of course, something that definitely distinguishes your work from a traditional guidebook is the illustrations that we've already talked about. I want to show everyone a couple more, and we're also going to get a bit of a behind the scenes, so to speak. I asked Emma to give us some of her source photographs, so like literally how it looked when she was there, and we're going to get to see how she kind of transforms it into her own universe of sorts. So I'm just going to run through a couple. A couple of these photographs are not mine. I think one or two of them come from the museums. Okay, a couple are from the museum, but in any event, so here is, uh, if you've been to Musée Commando, you know, here we have it. Um, the Cité d'Architecture, et Patrimoine. And this one, you really can get a sense of the setting. Archive Nationale, which you can only visit, right? Two days of the year. Twice a year, yeah. yes. Um, so Nuit des Musées, and of course, the Patrimony Days. And so this is the classic Gustave Moreau Museum, uh, artist slash house museum. And I wanted to pause on this illustration of yours and maybe ask you to tell us a bit more um, about specifically your choice, because it's all hand illustrations in this book. And that's not necessarily the most obvious choice, but an interesting one. And so I'm curious um, how you think that your illustrations can communicate differently um, than a traditional photograph. So I think it sort of began when, when it was a personal project and I, I could do what I was interested in doing, which was illustrated. But I, I do think that you know part of what I was trying to do is give you um, both a, a, a lens to approach each museum and really slow down and really see it. Whereas, you know, for example, that, that Moreau staircase, I think everyone has seen so many photos of it. It, it can be, be, you can sort of start to, to glaze over. So I want people to slow down, think about things a little differently. Um, and uh, I, I think that, that, that answers it. Absolutely. Oh, and also, sorry, just in general. So to go back to the Archive Nationale, like also there are things that I, I wanted to be able to give people some of the best backstage experience that I had. Um, so again, you know, th this is not necessarily is, you know something if if you google a list of museums I, I wanted i wanted people to to have something that was special to to get a feel for these places absolutely and i'll just add as the reader or um cons visual consumer it, it also gives a very personal dimension it makes it something almost precious i mean you feel like you're having a conversation or an int almost an intimate moment like i'm going with you emma to the museum and it i'm not someone who would be able to sketch or uh, use watercolor to this with this amount of um, dexterity, but it certainly made me want to return to sketching. So that was it's also something very um, special about that because we live in such an image saturated quality, right? With so many images um, that there's something delightful about returning to the hand illustration. Now, I also wanted to bring in another example here um, from the Marie Curie. Um, 
entry. And this is where the other thing that your book is doing, it's of course these really impressive architectural settings that sense a sense of place and atmosphere, but it's also the very illuminated detail. So I want to put you on the spot a minute and ask if you could tell us a little bit about these as very specific small objects inside of that one museum. So uh, Marie Curie and her, her husband, but particularly Curie because she outlived him, becomes a real celebrity in the, the 20s and, and 30s in particular. Um, and she does these these grand tours of, of the U.S. and is presented with you know a gram of radium by two different presidents. Um, but there's also this this craze for radium infused objects as as like health health serums or or just to make things glow. Um, and so they would paint a, a substance containing radium on watch hands. Um, and uh, there, that is the the radium infused razor. But there were also face creams. And, and water, uh, radon-infused, ra excuse me, radium-infused water that was popular until certain people started getting very sick and then it became evident that it was not a, not a good trend. <laughs> Wonderful, and so this is again, is one example of many of these very specifically chosen um, objects within a collection, which is great. Um, I want to change uh, tone a little bit and ask you to tell us a little bit about another behind-the-scenes moment. And here we have your drawing of the Museum National d'Histoire Naturelle. And this is, you can tell me more, the archive in the back? Or this the is torch? the oversized archive which shares a, a sort of a metal hanger with the, the main taxidermy laborato laboratory um, where they still prepare specimens for the collections of the Natural History Museum that mostly come from zoos now. They're mostly animals that have, have died at zoos and they don't have in the collection. Um, and it, the conservator there, the, the head taxidermist, is, is one of the people you'll meet around these museums where they just, they love their job. And um, actually when I, when I was there, this guy was bringing his little toddlers to this place and he says, oh yeah, we have lots of multi-generational museum families working at the History Museum. That's how a lot of people got started. Well. <laughs> so here we have some of your source photographs seeing things in storage. Maybe I'm going too quickly. And this one I want to pause on because those I know you're are, not a taxidermy Yeah, those expert, are different <laughs> steps in the process of the taxidermy. And actually what I, I was surprised by is that the most difficult part and the long, like the part that takes by far the longest is the building those molds to mount the skins. So that's a cheetah mold and it took you know, it's in there now, and I don't, I don't know that I have the number off the top of my head, but, but more than a week, at least, to just prepare that mold. That's the most difficult part, because it has to be perfectly fit, so there's no like sag to the skin, and, and they have to decide what pose they want it in. It's very labor-intensive. And so what's great, again, in the book, you get these little insights. So there's a little moment where you're actually getting uh, the words of your interview with the is a conservator, is what you call him, slash taxidermist. Um, and it's not the only, for example, you'll also hear from various curators, from designers who helped various institutions. So that's also interesting because um, it maybe feeds on your, your background also as a journalist. So I wanted to kind of 
give um, a sense of maybe the spectrum of your work. And so here, um, I believe these are mostly from your online portfolio and or Instagram, but I'm, I've kind of taken a few images of you sketching in C2 in Paris, because I want us to understand that Emma is, of course, an illustrator. We're gonna get a sense of that, so, and I would call that artist, um, but also a journalist that we're gonna move into. But first, of course, we have you sketching Notre Dame which now takes on a whole nother meaning, since this was Notre Dame with the spire, we know. Um, here we are. You can oh, narrate Perlis says. I feel like I was on deadline that day and I was in the cemetery instead. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's like my main memory of this is knowing I shouldn't really be there and should be doing something else. So of course, sketching in situ in a place like Paris can be inspiring. I don't know where you're... Uh, that's the Institut Suédois. In the Marais. Um, and of course, I, I'm an art historian, so I just wanted to remind us that this is a very venerable practice that artists, of course, have been doing for a long time. And so I just, um, and even if you were to look at the page layout, I mean, um, of Emma's book, for me, when I was reading it, the first thing that came to mind are the artist's Carnet de Voyage. So here we have Eugène Delacroix, of course, um, Carnet de Voyage when he was traveling through Morocco in 1832, um, sketching everything from architectural settings to people, making note of details. And so there was, um, for me, a very visual parallel. Um, of course, Delacroix didn't publish his in the same way, but there's um, a tradition that your work, I think, is drawing on that's very old, but there's also a tradition that's perhaps new and emerging. Um, if we were to link it to some of your other work as a journalist. So maybe can you tell us a little bit um, about your work as a journalist more broadly and how it may be fed into the creation of this book and the research? Yeah, um, well, I'll say one, one other thing, I guess, because I, I, don't, I don't think we pulled images for it, but I do think the Carnet de Voyage is a very French genre. I think it's had its moment in the States, but especially if I'm trying to explain what the book is, saying you know to a French person, Carnet de Voyage, and they go, oh yeah, with watercolor, and, and it, it's an understandable genre here. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I am not an art historian and I don't, I, I uh, approach things much more with a history lens um, and, and a newsier lens, because that's my background um, in American public radio in the US. Um, and this was a recent piece I did since the book come, came out. I mean, one of the, the things that hangs over a lot of these museums is the acquisition of the objects, which is something I got, a little bit into in the book, but not super heavily, partly because the Musée Dapper, which would have been, that, that was a, a very small museum of African art um, that just closed uh, shortly before the book came out. And that, that would have been a nice opportunity to discuss it because it's an interesting collection in that way. But um, this was a piece about the, the major, the large scale museum restitution that Macron sort of opened the door to and nothing is, has come of it yet, but that was part of, is part of a much wider conversation happening in Europe um, about you know what do you do with colonial era acquisitions and 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 how do you remedy this now? Absolutely, and so I also when we were talking, um, and I was particularly interested in this question of genre. Um, the other element that you introduced really to me is this. Um, practice of illustrated journalism. And so this is not your work, but maybe you can explain to us, you gave me some names for journalists, yeah. uh, illustrated journalists, multimedia journalists, that's the right word, um, who are doing, who are engaging in another practice. And maybe you can tell us more about how you see your work intersecting with that. Yeah, so it's, it's 
in the U.S., I think it's not it's not brand new. Like there have been publications like The New Yorker that have had visual journalism for a long time. But I do think there is something emerging, and I think some of it has to do with the internet and publications. You know, ten years ago, when we were putting radio stories online, we pulled these stock photos, um, and and that was it. And now even some public radio stations, they now have photographers. People realize that on the internet you need strong images, and I think some publications have gone in the, the direction of illustrations for that, which I think is great. But also there are illustrators now telling entire, uh, entire they, there are more, there is a genre emerging of writer illustrators who are, are presenting visual journalism, again, to make you look at topics, I think, in a new way. Um, an example I really like is someone did um, just man on the street interviews in, new, in the New Hampshire primaries in 2016. And that's a story you've all read a million times. But seeing these little portraits of, of people on the street and then hearing what they have to say, I think it just makes you, again, slow down, look at it a little differently, take something different from it. Great. So here are, uh, are a couple of different other illustrated journalists. Um, I don't know if you wanted to say anything about Julia Rothman's work. Or um, well, we're doing this in reverse, but there is actually one of the biggest things that's happened recently is the New York Times business section has an illustrated column. Um, and it was Wendy McNaughton over the past year, um, and now was just taken over, I think this week, by Julia Rothman. Um, uh, yeah, and this is Wendy's, Wendy's columns from, from early on. Um, and the, can you go to the next one? Because this is, I think, another one of those ones where um, this was a story about prison visitation and how private companies you know, are, are in on this business now and, and the effects that has for for families and, and inmates. So I think, again, that's a story I think you've, you've probably come across many people who follow criminal justice or who just you know read the news. You may have heard uh, about related issues, but I think she does have a way of, of breaking it down visually in a way that you know, you'll, you'll read it again. It's not something that just you feel sad and avoid. I think she does really meaningful work in that way. Excellent. So I'm going to back up and just mention, as I was discovering the names of the various illustrated journalists that you gave to me, it made me want to um, finally pay for the paywall of the New York Times. It's like, okay, <laughs> now I'm going to have to do that. Um, it also, I kind of discovered Julia Rothman's work through you know, your references and realized that she had written this book, Hello New York, an mm -hmm. illustrated love letter to the five boroughs, um, which you know, there's a kind of lineage there. So I'm not sure if you would consider your book a love letter to Paris um, or not, but there is something about giving um, insight into a city in a different way. So I'm not sure if this was a, a literal reference or it's just... No, I, I love this book. And also, Wendy McNaughton has a book called Meanwhile in San Francisco. And there are these sort of uh, city-oriented books that I think are wonderful. All right, thank you guys yes, so thank, join much. Join me. Thank you. Emma. Evenings with an author and other weeknight programs at the library are free and open to the public thanks to support from Grow at Annenberg, our members, and those who attend programs. For more information about the American Library in Paris and to see a full calendar of our Evenings with an Author events, visit AmericanLibraryInParis.org.